All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to continue our time of worship by studying the Word together. So if you'd open up your Bible to the book of Acts. You got it. Acts 18. We finish here um, this morning in this passage. And I'm going to read the passage along the way as we go through the text. But let me just um, throw this out there by way of introduction. So have you ever considered the idea that you are, and this is a quote from multiple different studies and sociology and human development, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. (laughs) Some of you are looking around and doing the math. You're looking at your friends literally in the room. (laughs) What does that say about me, right? Um, It makes sense though, really, it logically makes sense because when we're around people for long periods of time, there's this kind of immersive experience, this osmosis transfer. We start having the same mannerisms. We go to the same restaurants. We like to, we start doing the same things. So our habits, our attitudes, we start reflecting like a mirror. We start reflecting the people we hang out with the most. Friendship can send our lives in really wonderful and flourishing directions, really good places or really bad places, depending on the company we keep. And that is a very thoroughly biblical idea. The Proverbs talk a lot about friendship. Make no friendship with an angry man. You bring somebody that close and they're known for that. Basically, the Proverbs isn't saying you can't ever know or be friends with someone who's angry. It's saying, watch where the lines of influence are running. Be aware of that. If you read the book of Acts, and I think one of the things we've seen, but we haven't really pointed to along the way until this morning, is that Acts is a compelling picture of true friendship. I mean, this really is the fellowship of the redeemed. And they are walking closely. They are pursuing the Lord in the company of friends. They're pursuing the world in the company of friends. They are growing together, shaping each other, giving, generous, sacrificing. It's this loving community. And the outside world is looking in with their hands on the glass, as it were, and they're seeing something so compelling among these relationships of believers. It's like like the church in the book of Acts is a collective Adam and Eve, brothers and sisters doing what Adam and Eve didn't. Luke says over and over throughout this book that the word was fruitful and multiplied. And that doesn't that harken back to the very first page of the Bible, pre-fall, when God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And here's this, the church, the collective Adam and Eve, brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're being fruitful and they're multiplying and they're filling the earth with blessing, covenant blessing. Paul closes his letter to the Romans with 30-something names of friends who kept the mission going and kept Paul going. You and I need to know this kind of friendship that we see here in Acts 18. And, and I want to say this with equal importance and emphasis, maybe even a little bit more. We need to offer this kind of friendship as Christians to one another. So what's friendship look like in this passage? Number one, we need friends when we're afflicted. We need friends when we're afflicted. So notice the hardship. The name of the message this morning is friends in low places, and that I'm, not getting, I'm not getting a royalty from uh, Mr. Brooks uh, in that situation, but notice as I read the hardships, the low places that are described 
in this passage. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So we left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you, Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. So we'll pause there for a second. In verse 1, Paul arrives in Corinth. We know that he has left his friends behind in Macedonia, Timothy and Silas, he left them in Macedonia. So he comes into Corinth in verse one all by himself. When Paul writes the letter to these, these believers who become believers today in Acts 18, he's gonna write a letter called 1 Corinthians and he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter two how unsettled he felt the day he entered the city of Corinth four years earlier. He confesses his state of mind when he entered the city on this particular day in Acts 18. You ever, you ever approach a situation and you think this is gonna be really difficult and you end up being right? That's, that's Paul's state of mind. We'll see it in just a moment when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter two. Paul, that's Paul's state of mind. He's walking into a situation, he's tired, he's weary, he's fearful, he knows it's gonna be hard, and he ends up being very right. But Luke tells the story in a way that points at friendship as the game changer. Paul comes to Corinth alone in verse one, and what does he find in verse two? Friends. <laughs> Aquila and Priscilla are their names. Matter of fact, at every turning point in this developing story in Acts chapter 18, in the beginning and the middle and the end, we find the same two people, Aquila and Priscilla. They show up everywhere, in different cities around the world. They just pop up in important times, low times, hard times, they show up. Even, even the reason that they become friends is the context of hardship. This is in your notes if you're taking notes. Aquila and Priscilla had to relocate because of persecution. 
Again, verse two, you just look down and you see it. The emperor Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So they move, he's moving to Corinth. Unbeknownst to them as they move to Corinth, Paul is headed to Corinth. Paul is coming down. Paul has experienced hardship. They've experienced hardship. And they both, in God's providence, meet in the same town. They've already set up shop right there in town. And here comes Paul. It's like God is orchestrating this thing in ways they don't even know. As they're headed to the same city, God has already rigged it. God orchestrates it so that Paul somehow bumps into a guy named Aquila. Turns out they find out they're both followers of Jesus. Paul has just arrived in Corinth. They have a home in Corinth. You can come stay in our home. They have a tent making business. Paul is a tent maker by trade. I mean, this is just, God has pulled all of these threads together so that he's providing for Paul. Sometimes, sometimes God's grace isn't in the fireworks of power and flashy miracles. Sometimes it's God's hand hidden inside the glove of normal daily events. And Paul would later write these words about Priscilla and Aquila in Romans chapter 16. He writes, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Now, Paul says, greet these people. They saved my neck. They saved my life. Well, when they moved from Italy, they didn't know they were moving to save Paul's life. They didn't know the future. They moved because the emperor banished a whole ethnicity from Rome. That's why they're moving. And yet God has another plan, right? Luke says when they get to Corinth, what do they do? They saw their new location as part of God's larger purpose. They saw their new location as part of God's larger purpose. You ever stop and think, you're at your school because God sent you there. You're at your workplace in your particular office or cubicle because God sent you there. You're at that particular park bench because God sent you there. You're in your neighborhood, your suburb, wherever you are in the city. You're there because God sent you there. You didn't put yourself there. There was a larger plan of a sovereign God of providence. He sent you where you are. Do you have eyes to see that? Wouldn't that change the level of intentionality that we live with this week, Aquila and Priscilla's example encourages us in this way. Make your home a place of ministry. Make your home a place of ministry. When my, um, my older brother Paul, when Paul and I were little, there was a single woman in our church in her 30s and her name was Allison Post. We just called her Miss Allison and she was a sitter for me and my older brother. And... Um, She'd buy us, if, if our parents had some kind of meeting or something after church, we'd go to Miss Allison's. You know, we would go to her apartment, she'd pick up uh, a box of Popeye's fried chicken and we'd eat ice cream and we'd watch movies and it was awesome. And we loved hanging out with, with Miss Allison. And um, you know, we all got older and Paul and I we went to college and went to, lived in other states and we lost touch with her. She ended up moving to Tucson Arizona and her health 
is now declining rapidly, right? She's dying right now. And the reason I know that is because somehow, a few years ago, she found my brother, and she got his phone number, and they talk every week on the phone. And he has spoken to her caregivers and her doctors. Why? Because 45 years ago, Miss Allison was in our church and she loved us like family. Friendship in low places. When we lost our dad, Miss Allison was there and now as she's dying, my brother's there. God has this thing rigged, right? Friendship in low places. And the irony of God, the emperor's horrendous edict ended up launching a church plant in Corinth. And it ended up giving Paul a place to stay and giving Paul friends around the table and meals to enjoy. It provided everything this brother needed. Acts is filled, don't miss it, with pictures of friendship. Old friends, new friends, more friends. Old friends like Silas and Timothy who come pulling up in just a second here. New friends like Priscilla and Aquila who we meet right out of the gate in the first two verses. More friends like the large group of Corinthian believers coming up out of the waters of baptism in verse eight. Old friends, new friends, more friends. When Paul, was Paul, you think about it, right? Was Paul in a low place when he came to Corinth? Oh, again, four years from now, we're in Acts 18, Four years from now, Paul writes these same believers a letter and he says, I want to tell you how I felt the day I arrived in your town. And here's what he said, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's him saying, that was my, that was my headspace when I arrived in Corinth in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You ever show up to something knowing you're gonna need to be strong and you're running on empty? That's Paul. Shows up in Corinth. He knows he's gotta muster some strength. He's gotta share the gospel. It's not gonna be easy. This is the most immoral city on the planet, a very deeply pagan city. And then he's gonna face issues with the synagogues and Jewish people, his kin, in that way, it's just gonna be hard in all directions and he's already shows up weak fear and in trembling. They, people can't come up for air in Acts chapter 18. Hardship number one, let's just go through them one at a time. Hardship number one, the most powerful man on earth writes a policy that targets Jews and Jewish Christians for expulsion. Hardship number two, you open your mouth to speak the truth and verse six, they resist and blaspheme. Hardship number three, enemies rise up in verse 12 to make a united attack against Paul. And then there's hardship number four, poor Sosthenes, the whole story of Sosthenes. Hardship number four is basically this. They drag you to the tribunal to try to get a verdict to get you killed. Gallio somehow rules in your favor. Justice is done. The justice system rules in favor for gospel proclamation. But the mob doesn't get the memo. So the moment that you leave the courtroom, they grab your friend Sosthenes in verse 17 and beat him senseless. This passage is marinated in low places. It lives in low places. One of the most wonderful phrases in the New Testament is the phrase, just two words, but God. What comes before that is usually something horrible, right? 
We were dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians chapter two, the classic, right? We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. The, the interesting feature though of Acts 18 is that the formula is slightly amended where you have hardship number one, hardship number two, hardship number three, hardship number four is described and then it says some version of but friends. Human people, as Chip was praying earlier, the hands and feet of Jesus, it's, it's but God to be sure, but it's God working through very human, ordinary believers, brothers and sisters in Jesus, Aquila, and Priscilla again show up at every turning point in Acts chapter 18. Paul comes to Corinth alone and they say, we've got a room and we've got a job. Do you work with leather? Have you ever made a tent before? <laughs> Paul heads to Ephesus, they say we're coming along. They buy a house in Ephesus. They will become the house church in Ephesus. They're all over, right? Paul ends up writing the Corinthians and, and when he writes to the Corinthians four years from now, he's mentioning three friends who we met four years earlier in Acts 18 and Paul greets the church at Corinth and in the very first verse of his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, guess who I got here with me, Corinth? Here's what it says, Paul, this is his greeting called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, the boy beat up outside the tribunal, with the black eye in Acts chapter 18, is standing there with Paul. And Paul says, hey, Corinthian church, remember this guy? It was a hard day four years ago. This guy's walking with Jesus. And so the Sosthenes story comes full circle. Sosthenes, leader of the synagogue, as he's described in Acts 18, becomes a follower of Jesus, beaten by those he taught because he became a follower of Jesus, and then embraced as a brother in Christ when Paul says, Sosthenes, our brother. So that's how Paul opens his letter to the church at Corinth. How does he close his letter to the church at Corinth? He talks about two other friends that we met right here in Acts 18 on day one. The churches of Asia send you greetings. There they are, Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. In their home where? He's writing to Corinth, so they're not in Corinth? No, they're in Ephesus. We find that out when we just keep reading our passage. Paul went, for, went to Ephesus and they came along and they bought a house there and now their house is the house church where the believers gather. Paul doesn't need a place to stay in Corinth anymore. The gospel mission is now advancing to Ephesus. Guess, guess who buys a place in Ephesus so the church can meet in their house? This is their go-to move. They've been doing this all day, every day. Aquila and Priscilla, this is what they do. Paul arrives in Corinth alone and yet within days, don't miss it, he's got two new friends who give him a home and a job. He's got two old friends who rejoin him in the work and he's got many more friends to whom he'll write letters to help them grow in their faith. First Corinthians and second Corinthians. We need friends when we are afflicted. Two, we need friends to grasp the word. And now if you'd follow along in verse 23. After spending some time there, he set out traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, 
strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, sometimes that's translated who was mighty in the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. So now we're in Ephesus. He had been instructed, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After, there they are again, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was of great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. It's interesting because far from hiding Apollos' gifts and education, Luke brings it forward there in verse 24. He's this eloquent man. He's competent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. We learned that he was, he was Alexandrian. He was a native of Alexandria, so he's trained in Alexandria, Egypt. You put Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, and Yale into one city in the ancient world, and that city is Alexandria. The best Hebrew Old Testament scholars in the world Philo himself lived there. There's only one problem with Apollos, and it's this. Apollos' teaching is accurate, but incomplete. Luke says he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. Well, that was what John the Baptist preached, the way of the Lord. Prepare a way for the Lord. Apparently, word got to Alexandria about this message from John the Baptist. Or maybe he traveled to Jerusalem as a, as a Jew, and maybe that's when he met him in Judea. Who knows how they met or how he ended up hearing the teaching of John the Baptist. But in verse 25, Apollos is preaching Jesus Christ. He has heard that the way of the Lord is Jesus he is, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. But again, this is the ancient world, right? So he's familiar with the teaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. But when Jesus died on the cross, crucified for sinners, rose again, ascended into glory, and poured out his Holy Spirit on believers and disciples in Jerusalem, Egypt didn't get a memo. Egypt didn't get an e-blast, right? He only knows the baptism of John, which means John is preaching a 1.0 message in a 2.0 age. He needs an update. He needs to take the upgrade. (laughs) And how does God get him up to speed? Answer, friends. Priscilla and Aquila, they are literally everywhere. How, then you ask the question, Apollos is one of the mightiest scholars and best preachers in the first century. Some, Martin Luther, for example, believes that the book of Hebrews was written by Apollos because it has this high Greek, Alexandrian almost style, and yet it's so steeped in a knowledge of the Old Testament. He's a mighty preacher. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but he was a mighty, mighty preacher. How did the leather workers, tent makers, teach him anything? Well, remember, those leather worker, tent maker friends were in Corinth where Paul taught daily 
for 18 months. That was probably the best seminary class in world history. 18 months of intensive teaching. And so when they hear Apollos preaching in verse 26, they notice something's missing. It's accurate, but it's incomplete. And so verse 26 says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Now just notice some things that I don't think we're supposed to pass over. They didn't heckle him. They didn't shame him. They, they took him aside. I'll, um, I'll confess something. Maybe I'm not alone in confessing this. Um, we get proud of what we know as Christians and we become unteachable. And then what we do sometimes in the body of Christ is we sit across from somebody and we start sizing one another up as to where do the lines of teaching go? Do they go from me to you or from you to me or from both of us? But we size each other up and there's this kind of superiority game that can go on. Check out Corinthians, which Paul addresses that issue. I preached John chapter four in February of 2008 and I know that that was the date because I looked it up last night. I pulled up the manuscript from that sermon that I preached John four in February 2008 and I was, uh, I was a thunder puppy. I used a lot of sarcasm uh, when I was describing the woman that Jesus met at the well and a young girl met me at the on the floor at the, at the foot of the stage after service. And she really struggled with the way I delivered that message. She was a college student at Tulane University. And she really struggled. She thought I dealt harshly and sarcastically with the woman at the well. And she was obviously hurt by how I described the immoral woman. And we spoke for a little while. And then we left. And then she sent me an email. And then I e emailed her back multiple pages of response and dismissing her concerns and defensive. And I don't remember how many days, maybe months, I don't remember how, how long it was, but I went back to that email and realized she was right. She was right. And I didn't preach John 4 again until I preached it here 12 years later in February of 2000. 20, and her fingerprints were all over that sermon. I remembered what she told me. It shaped the sermon because she was right. It became a sermon that invited every kind of sinner into the joy of turning a new page, finding forgiveness. It was a sermon about how Jesus rescues us from the grip of shame. What a friend that girl was to me. I don't remember her name. She was a friend to me. And by extension, she was a friend to any guilt-ridden people who happened to be there that Sunday in February of 2020 to hear my second attempt at John 4. Here's the question for us. Are we always the teacher or are we still learning? If we do this right, Brook Hills, we're gonna learn from each other. That's the way it's meant to be. <laughs> That's flourishing. 
You and I as friends at the table, learning from each other. You know what's a big part of what small group ministry is about? Learning the word together. Bibles open on our laps. I once heard someone say, the humble are easily edified. So do you go to your small group open to learn, open to listen, open to change, or ready to catch every error and ready to instruct your inferiors? Right? Here's the thing. Go humble and you'll get something for your soul because the humble are easily edified. We need friends when we're afflicted. We need friends to grasp the word. What a friend we have in Jesus. You know, we hear a few direct speeches. There's summaries probably of direct speeches from people in Acts chapter 18. Again, mostly they're one to two sentence speeches. Paul says something. He says, basically, if you don't want to hear this, I will go to the Gentiles. Blood's not on my hands anymore. I told you the truth. Then we hear the crowds, and the crowds say, this man is subverting Roman law. Gallio, do something about it. Then we hear Gallio. No, he isn't subverting Roman law. I'm not here to adjudicate your theology disputes. And then Paul speaks, and we hear him saying farewell as he's packing his bags and leaving. Four direct speeches that we hear. But in the midst of these four speeches which occur in the heat of conflict, there's one other direct speech. And guess who it is? The Lord. In verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, quotation marks, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. And guess who needed to hear that? The apostle who came in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Those words from Jesus are not, were not a promise that Christians won't ever get hurt. Check out Sosthenes seven verses from now. (laughs) It's not that kind of promise, right? You ever... You ever trying to be faithful to the Lord and and it's not adding up? You're not seeing any difference. You you wonder, what is my purpose here? I'm, I'm out here trying to be faithful and it's not affecting or influencing seemingly anything. And you need the Lord to say what? What? what the Lord says to Paul. Stay right where you are. Keep doing what you're doing. It does matter. Keep speaking. I'm doing something here. Trust me. I'm doing something in you. I'm doing something through you. Don't change. Stay there. Stay the course. I'm with you. I got you. (laughs) Jesus is everything we need in our low places. Who is this Jesus? He is the savior of sinners, advocate for the accused, friend to the afflicted, counselor to the confused, and near to the brokenhearted. Translation, if you're in a low place this morning, Jesus can find you there. If you're afflicted by trials, if you're confused and full of doubts, you're anxious, you're weary, remember, Christianity is not a rigorous exercise for the spiritually impressive. It's news. 
It's a report of what God has done in Jesus to rescue us, weak, fearful, trembling people. That's the announcement. Jesus was crucified for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised on the third day. And everybody who trusts him and turns from sin will never be condemned. That's good news. That's a report. Not to condemn, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer writes, not to condemn the sons of men did Christ, the Son of God, appear. No weapons in his hands are seen, no flaming sword nor thunder there. Such was the pity of our God. He loved the race of man so well, he sent his Son to bear our load of sins and save our souls from hell. Sinners, believe the Savior's word. Trust in his mighty name and live. A thousand joys his lips afford, his hands a thousand blessings give. We raise our Father's name on high who his own spirit sends to bring rebellious strangers nigh and turn his foes to friends. Trust in Jesus this morning and you will find in him a friend that sticks closer than a brother, a friend in your affliction, a friend in your confusion. I hope you find here as we looked at this passage in Acts 18 that Jesus' gifts are so often handed to us by brothers and sisters. You know, if they all crowded in for a selfie photo at the end of Acts chapter 18, it would be this ragtag group there, right? Who do you see? You see there's Priscilla and Aquila in their leather making shop in Corinth and, or maybe it's a picture of them in their church their house church in Ephesus. There's Silas and Timothy who rejoined Paul, Paul's traveling buddies. There's Titius Justice, his house next door to the synagogue. When the synagogue shut down, he said, come to my house. So where do you live? Next door. <laughs> Crispus, the leader of that synagogue, along with his whole household because he became a follower of Jesus. Sosthenes, the successor to Crispus, the next leader of the synagogue with a black eye and a busted lip. He's in the picture. Many Corinthians coming who have come, having come up out of the waters of baptism in verse eight. And Apollos, the preacher who said good things but was kind of missing the whole point. It's a ragtag group of friends, the kind of friends you need when you're in a low place. And the question is, can that be us? Are you available for this? This takes sacrifice. This isn't easy. This isn't convenient. Is your home open for ministry? Can someone take you aside and teach you anything or have you already arrived? Church should involve a promise. It's nothing less than this. You can have friends in low places.